0: Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Father in heaven, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, we ask this morning that you would give us that hunger for a heavenly food. Your word, that it would nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. Well, we started our series in Matthew a few weeks back. And you may remember, if you're with us, that after a couple millennia of prophetic revelations, the Old Testament, and then after about a 400-year intertestamental period, which is also often referred to as the period of silence, there was this great burning anticipation in the hearts of the people of Israel for this promised coming Messiah that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And Matthew breaks that silence and in the opening genealogy makes it very clear that in Jesus you have the son of David, that is, the heir to the eternal kingdom. In Jesus you have the son of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, who is the seed in which all the nations will be blessed, going back to those Abrahamic promises of Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the anointed one, that Jesus is the one that all of the Old Testament has been promising, looking forward to, shadowing. Jesus is the one that all the hearts are longing for In this coming Messiah, but he's not the Messiah, he's not the Christ, he's not the anointed one in the way Israel expected. And as the Gospels unfold, you see what their expectations were. When the people of Israel read the Old Testament and they read the prophecies of his coming, and they're all over the Old Testament. I don't think it's an oversimplification to say that the majority of them latched on to those more spectacular prophecies and the expectations as high as they were and as admirable as they were centered around this idea that when the Messiah came, when the Christ came, he was going to come as this great conquering warrior king And he was going to come in and wipe out the Romans, and he was going to to establish this earthly, nationalistic, geopolitical kingdom with Israel ruling forever. And Matthew says, and the other gospel writers say, not so fast. Jesus is the Messiah, yes, he is the anointed one, but he's not coming with those expectations. And even in those opening verses with the genealogy, we saw that unexpected twist that Jesus was going to come not just to sinners, but he was going to come through sinners. And Jesus was not just going to come through the line of David, as important as that is, but he was also going to come through Gentiles to Gentiles. And so we saw several of those listed in the genealogy. He's already setting us up. For this running theme that this, this, Jesus is the Messiah, but his first coming as the Messiah is not what is expected. In addition to that, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Matthew emphasizes that right up front. And then he cuts right to the heart of the matter. Jesus, as the Messiah in his first coming, is coming to save his people. Look back at verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus for, not because he's coming to establish a geopolitical kingdom, not because he's coming to wipe out the Romans, not because he's coming to set up this nationalistic earthly kingdom. You'll call his name Jesus because in his first advent, in his first appearance, the first coming of the incarnation, he will save his people from their sin. So I kind of think of the first coming of Jesus, as setting the stage, he's primarily here to conquer sin and the world and the devil and the flesh. That sets the stage for the second advent, and we're here in that inter-advental period. That sets the stage for the second advent, where he will come in spectacular glory. And he will set up an everlasting kingdom. I think the point being is, we're just not there yet, and it turns out there was some more important work to do on the front end primarily dealing with human sin and God's wrath and the devil, that is much more important and of priority of place than setting up the kingdom. But all of this hangs together. So it's all unfolding. It's just not all unfolding at the same time. They're getting their minds around that. I'm still getting my mind around that. But in our passage this morning, you have the story of the Magi, the, the wise men, as the ESV translates the word in the Greek. And it's an exciting story. I think many of us have been drawn to the Magi for years because they're so mysterious and they're these strangely dressed men coming from this exotic location in the East. You can think of the Magi as the scholars of their time. In the ancient world, it's important to keep in mind they didn't make the distinctions of special areas of academics like we do today. They just said no. So there was really no distinction between categories like astronomy and astrology. In the ancient mind, those two things just go together. It's not until the Scientific revolution brought about by Christianity that we begin to see there's distinctions in these things. Astronomy is good. Astrology, bad. In their minds, they're just one and the same. These wise men, these magi, they were not only the astronomers and the astrologers of the day. They were also the scientists. They were the mathematicians. They were the magistrates. In fact, that's where we get our word magistrate from. They were the legal authorities. But we also get our word magic from the word magi. So you see right there the, 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 the melding of these categories. They're kind of the, uh, if, if a, if a uh, liberal arts major kind of generalizes in everything, these guys were those who specialize in everything. They just do everything. They were the go-to people who knew everything. They're coming from the east. And we see in verse 1, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, these wise men, these Magoi, these Magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come To worship Him now, contrary to to tradition, all of this doesn't happen on the same night. We have our manger scenes. You got the three wise men there. It's all together in the same barn or the same little cave. That's not how it happens, according to the Gospels. In fact, this is a good bit later. This is after uh, Jesus has been named. This is after Jesus has been presented. In the temple, this is after, in Luke's account, Simeon meets the Christ, which was 40 days after his birth. So this is at least a month and a half after the birth of Christ. But a couple other clues we have here. You know, a little later in the story, uh, Herod orders all of the children to be killed, the male children. And he specifically orders children under two years of age to be killed. So, I think that tells us something there about the arriving of the Magi and the timing in Herod's mind. And I'm sure he's smart enough to leave a little wiggle room. Two years out is the maximum, but it's certainly more than a month. So, somewhere, this is somewhere between a month after the birth of Christ up to two years after the birth of Christ. They come saying they have seen his star. We saw his star, verse 2, when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, the star, and we spent some time on this back in December of last year. I think the star has stirred about as much speculation as anything else in the scriptures. What in the world is this star? And I remember reading article after article, commentator after commentator, YouTube videos, et cetera, et cetera, till you just kind of get cross-eyed. And here's my conclusion, we don't know you've got outstanding arguments for everything from a planet to a meteor to a comet. The word in the Greek is a bright, it basically means a bright light in the sky. So it could be all kinds of things. Some people even proposed it was a UFO. I don't believe that. Whatever it is, there's this bright light in the sky The astronomers, astrologers, the magi who study these kinds of things all the time, mathematics and the sky and the stars, they see it. They know there's something special about it, and they get out their holy books, and they start researching and looking what is going on, what in the world could this mean? We get enough from the story to know that they are familiar with the Old Testament. And most commentators agree because they're coming from the east, because they're coming from where the Babylonian empire was located. If you remember the Old Testament, when Israel was deported to Babylon and the whole book of Daniel kind of chronicles this, there was plenty of opportunities for Bible-believing, Bible-reading Israelites like Daniel to share the Old Testament scriptures with people in the east. And in fact, we know that after the dispersion, when the Jews returned to their homeland to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, most stayed behind. They had, they had already gone a couple, you know, generation or two generations in this foreign land. Most stayed behind. So there's no doubt, it's not a stretch at all, to imagine there's now been a long, several hundred years, history of influence of the Old Testament scriptures in the East, so here are these magi, they, they, they know the prophecies, they know the Old Testament, they know the skies, they, they know astronomy, they're putting all of these things together, they see this star, something important is happening here, and they start to follow it. Now, I don't think this is an ordinary star, however you understand the star, because if you look at verse 9 in our passage this morning, It says the star rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place or the house where the child was. I I have a hard time reading that as a comet. I've, I've never seen a comet, never heard of a comet. I don't think there is a comet or a star or a planet that rises, moves, settles over a house. That seems oddly specific. I think probably what's happening here, at least by verse nine, is that this is the Shekinah glory of God. You think about how many times in the scriptures, Old Testament especially, when God represents himself, presents himself as a pillar of light or a burning bush or a bright light to Moses. He does this in the New Testament, too. And especially with the pillar of light in Israel, it moved. It would go from place to place. It would rest over the tabernacle. You kind of get the same picture. I think this is probably what's happening here. There's a supernatural light, which is no problem for a supernatural God. Maybe what they saw in the east to begin with was a star, and the star brought them to the west, and then we get to the west, and there's a supernatural light, and that could could be dealing with two different things here. Whatever it is, It signified Christ was born. They knew enough about the skies and they knew enough about the holy books and the prophecies of scripture to put two and two together. And they head out to Jerusalem, the capital. And another deviation from tradition here that's important to note is there's probably more than three of these guys. In our nativity scenes, we always have three wise men. I think that's just based on the fact that there are three gifts mentioned, but just because there's three gifts mentioned doesn't mean there's only three magi. These magi were Persian royalty. And most commentators agree, you wouldn't have just had three of them travel. These these members of Persian royalty would have come with an entourage an entourage of impressive wealth and prestige and probably intentionally seeking to portray a very powerful royal demeanor. These are the, the um, upper echelon in the eyes of the world. They probably would have arrived on Arabian stallions. They probably would have arrived with a small army of guards. They're coming into Roman territory And it's also important to keep in mind that they're coming out of the east, the the Parthian Empire. At the time, that was one of the greatest threats to Rome. And Herod finds himself in a tight spot. If if you look geographically, Herod, he's serving as a king. He's not Jewish himself. The the Romans have appointed him as a king of, of Israel and Judea. He's sandwiched right in between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. And both of these empires are potentially at war at any given moment. And as he's sandwiched in this tight spot, here comes this royal militaristic entourage of kingmakers from the east. They come into the capital city and they're asking, where's the new king? Where's the king of the Jews? Which is Herod's title. You could imagine Why this would not sit well with Herod, and why we read he was troubled. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And not only was Herod troubled, but we're told all Jerusalem was troubled with him. When Herod is troubled, everybody's troubled. And part of the reason being, Herod was just an evil evil man. We we know from history that this was a man who murdered several of his nine wives. This was a man who murdered three of his own sons in power plays. This was a man who murdered one of his own mothers in law. This was a man who murdered many priests. There's a story about Herod commanding the people of Jerusalem to round up the leading elders. And after he died, he wanted them to put the leading elders to death just to make sure there was some genuine mourning going on in Jerusalem at his death because apparently he knew nobody was going to mourn his death. They did not do this according to history, but that just gives you a sense of who this guy was. Emperor Augustus reportedly once said he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's own son. So that's the kind of mentality you're dealing with. No wonder when he's troubled, no wonder when he hears they're asking for a king that he's filling the position, he he gets angry about this and he begins to scheme And he first calls the religious leaders of the Jews, verse 4. He assembled the chief priests, he assembled the scribes of the people, he inquired of them of where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, and from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That is a quote from the prophet Micah, Micah 5.2, that was prophesied about 700 years before this event, and the religious leaders, they look at their books, they determine that this is where Christ is going to be born, the interesting thing is, they tell him, look, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, turns out Bethlehem is just about five miles south of Jerusalem, you could be there in an hour by foot if you wanted to go check it out and look for yourself. Here's the amazing thing though: These religious leaders, these chief priests, these scribes, they could be there in about an hour. All the report says he's been born. They don't go. They don't care. They just don't care. They know the Christ might be five miles south of here, and they just don't care. They don't go. Look what Herod does next. We'll come back to that in just a second. Next, he summons the Magi, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He's playing on their abilities to find out exactly where this child is. He lies to them and tells them, oh, I want to worship him too. Of course, we know as the story unfolds, that's not true. He wants to murder the child. But he's using the religious elite. He's using the magi to ascertain where this child is, to ascertain a time frame. They go, before they come back, they're warned not to report back. Verse 12 tells us they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod, because no doubt if Herod had the chance, he probably would have killed them too after he got the information that he wanted. But here's a point I want to make about Herod. When the word of the, Magi and the word of the religious scholars come to him that this king had been born, what's Herod's reaction? He's terror-stricken. He's angry. He's antagonistic. He is conceited. He is prideful. He is full of self-interest. He is consumed with a desire to preserve his own power at all costs and to slaughter whoever he has to slaughter that gets in his way. So you have the response of the religious leaders. You have the response of the political elite, Herod. But here's a very important point to Matthew. And I think we'll see this many times, Lord willing, in our study of Matthew, one of Matthew's very special concerns is to show us that when Jesus came to save his people from their sins. It included not only Jews, but also Gentiles, right? Now that, that's, that's a big focus in that opening genealogy, the number of Gentiles. He's already signaling to us. Jesus is coming. This is the fulfillment to the promise of Abraham. He's going to be a a blessing, not just to the Jewish people, but he's going to be a blessing to all of the nations, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And you see that here in the visit of the Magi. Matthew shockingly opens his gospel, emphasizing a number of Gentiles in the lineage, Matthew moves into chapter 2, shockingly showing the first people who come to worship the Messiah are Gentiles. The first people in the New Testament after the incarnation that God is calling to worship the Messiah are Gentiles. And it's the Gentiles and these magi that come and worship the king. So, no, there's three responses here. Three responses. You have the religious elite, these priests and scribes, who walk five miles to the south just to go take a look and inquire as to whether or not the Christ has been born. That's that's complete and utter indifference. That is the epitome of letting the cares of this world choke out the things of God. That's the religious elite. Then you have the political elite. They are utterly threatened by the message that the Christ has been born. Herod typifies all those who are antagonistic to Christ, who are angry at this message, who are more concerned. Think about Herod. He's more concerned with ruling his own life than he is to bowing a knee and submitting to the king of kings and lord of lords. That's how antagonistic he is to the faith. But then you have the magi. Unexpected. Not something we would guess. They're pagans. They're Gentiles. They're from a foreign land. They're powerful. They're king makers. They have everything that the world could possibly have to offer. And these powerful elite kingmakers travel a long distance at great cost to find the Christ. When they find the Christ, they acknowledge him as king. These powerful elite kingmakers These astronomers, they bow down on their knees, they fall down, verse 11, and they worship him. Can you you imagine that scene? Here's the peasant Mary and and her uh, husband with this small child. Here come these kingmakers and they're bowing down before him and at great cost, they are revering him with gifts that belong to a king. Nobody rebukes him. Nobody corrects them. This is, this is just all so proper and, and really the only logical response. And the message to us this morning is that those who bow before the Christ, as he is presented in the Gospels, just like the Magi did, will rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That's a great phrase in verse 10. When they found the Christ, when they followed his star, when they bowed down on their knees and worshipped him, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Father, we thank you that in Jesus you have revealed to us the Christ. And we pray this morning that We would not respond to that with indifference. We pray this morning, we would not respond to that with anger and rebellion. The Father, by the grace of your Spirit, may we respond this morning on bended knee, worshiping in reverence and awe. In Christ's name we pray, amen.